The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. So good morning again. Thank you for joining us. Those of, us, those of you who are live here and have been working hard since this morning and driving back to places that things were left because, you know, we didn't get everything right. Um, and just setting everything up. Uh, thank you guys for being here. You guys are representing the rest of the members. I wish we could all be together. Um, I really do miss you guys. I was able to see a few people this week and that was really encouraging. Uh, one of the things that I've been trying to do in this time when we're not able to be together is I've been trying to pray for you guys. So I prayed for each of you members by name this week, just according to situations we've spoken about, just thanking God for the grace of God on your life. Um, it really is an honor to watch over your souls through prayer, through preaching, and through care. Today we are resuming our series, Follow the Son, as we preach through the Gospel of Mark. We're picking up in chapter 12. If you recall, Jesus is now in Jerusalem. He entered triumphantly but strangely riding on a donkey, just displaying his humility and authority based on Old Testament prophecy. And he went and he visited the temple that very same evening. This was a Sunday. Uh, and then he came back the next day and just through, through prophetic actions and through speech, pronounced judgment on the temple, turning over the tables of the money changers and generally making a nuisance of himself because the whole enterprise was fruitless. And the hierarchy in Jerusalem did not take kindly to this. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders challenged Jesus' authority. The Pharisees and the Herodians tried to trap him with his words in order to discredit him. But Jesus has dispatched every challenge that has come at him so far, displaying this amazing wisdom. In Mark 12, 18 to 27, we are presented with the next contender, the Sadducees. What we're about to witness is a rabbinical-style argument from 2,000 years ago. I mean, exciting stuff, huh? But whether you're a believer or not, this argument could not be more consequential. What's at stake here is not only the authority of Jesus, but the destiny of every human being who has ever lived. So listen closely as I read God's holy word here in Mark 12, 18 to 27. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how, Jesus, uh, how, sorry, how God spoke to him, 
saying, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite right. This text details an elaborate question that the Sadducees asked Jesus, as well as his astounding reply. As I thought about it, this, this kind of intricately and carefully framed and dramatic question, a poem by an unknown author came to mind. You might be familiar with it. As I was going to St. Ives, I met a man with seven wives. Each wife had seven sacks. Each sack had seven cats. Each cat had seven kits. Kits, cats, sacks, and wives. How many were there going to St. Ives? The poem, of course, is a riddle. Uh, and to ensure that you don't think I'm that cultured, I'm pretty sure I remember it from one of the Die Hard movies. And before you get your calculator out and try to figure out the tallying the wives and the cats and the kittens and all of that, the answer is actually quite straightforward. You just have to pay careful attention to the beginning of the poem and the question at the end. How many were there going to St. Ives? There's only one person going to St. Ives. The speaker was the one going to St. Ives. Everybody else he met on the way there. So I thought of that poem because the question that the Sadducees asked Jesus was a riddle of sorts also. A conundrum they believed had no reasonable solution. It was meant to ridicule belief in the resurrection and therefore to discredit Jesus' authority since he taught about the resurrection. And at first glance, this question about a wife and seven husbands seems to be quite a dilemma. When you read the story, though, it's pretty clear that Jesus did not think much of their question. But Jesus' reply itself had a riddle-like quality, didn't it? What is Jesus saying? And why is it important for us to hear? What I want to do today is just to walk you through this text and unpack it for you and help you to see what's going on and why eternity is at stake. So look with me again at verse 18. This brief encounter is the one and only mention of the Sadducees in Mark's gospel. And Mark mentions only one particular thing about them. He says, they say there's no resurrection. By they say, he meant they teach. You see, the Sadducees were the rivals to the Pharisees. They, were, uh, they held political power. Uh, they were authorities on the scripture. And they were teachers of the law. The Pharisees taught that the dead would rise. They taught about the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment. And Jesus agreed with him about these truths, but as we've seen throughout this gospel, he took issue with them about many other things. But how could these teachers of the law not believe in the resurrection? Well, the resurrection is not mentioned often in the Old Testament. It's hinted at in several places. Perhaps the clearest reference to it comes in the apocalyptic writings of the prophet Daniel. But the Sadducees didn't regard Daniel or any of the prophetical books or the Psalms or any of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament as God's word. The only part of the Old Testament that they, that they saw as inspired scripture was the Torah, the first five books of the Bible in which the law of God featured prominently. Just as Jesus assessed the temple, the whole temple system and found it wanting, just as he indicted the Pharisees for their failed leadership, he will find the Sadducees wanting also. And he'll find them wanting in the very era where they claim to be accomplished and competent. 
Just like the Pharisees and Herodians, the Sadducees would reject and condemn Jesus. The rise of this influential teacher was a threat to their power also. It could not go unchallenged. All of the Jewish leaders, no matter what else they disagreed about, they agreed about Jesus. They were united in their rejection of the Messiah. Pay attention in the text to how the Sadducees address Jesus as they pose their question. I mean, they address him as teacher. But we've seen this before, haven't we? In fact, in the story that immediately precedes this, that's how the Pharisees and the Herodians also address Jesus. In both cases, they're feigning respect. Their goal was to show him up, not to learn from him. They point Jesus' attention to this exceptional provision in God's law that required the brother of a deceased man to marry his widow in order to have a child who would be reckoned as his brother's heir. The point of the stipulation was to ensure the survival of the family line and the passing down of inheritance. So with this particular Mosaic law in the background, they propose an elaborate hypothetical scenario with one wife and the successive deaths of seven brothers who each in turn marry her. The whole story is leading up to the predicament that they present in verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now remember, they don't believe in the resurrection. So their point is, if there was, if there was such a thing, it would lead to some untenable situations around marriage. James Edwards comments, In the minds of the Sadducees, simple wit and common sense are sufficient to reduce the idea of the resurrection to an absurdity. For the Sadducees, the resurrection made no sense. To their minds, it was an open and shut case. But they were so confident in their thinking that they couldn't see the flaw in it. The flaw was in their assumptions. They assumed that if there was life after death, it would simply be the continuation of life as we know it, including marriages, a more glorious life, but the same sort of life. Jesus is about to expose their faulty assumptions. But before we look carefully at his reply, think about this story with me for a moment. Why does Mark include this particular story? Why does he tell it in such detail? I mean, I think he could have established that, that Jesus' conflict with the religious authorities included the Sadducees without giving us this kind of blow-by-blow commentary. And I think he's done a good job of establishing Jesus' unique wisdom and authority up to now. So why this story? I suspect Mark includes it because of what's at stake in this debate. Resurrection. Zoom out from this particular conversation and think of the journey we've been on with Jesus. The turning point of the Gospel of Mark is chapter 8, where Jesus concludes his ministry in Galilee and all of the surrounding areas and begins his journey to Jerusalem. That's when he starts to reveal to his disciples the mission of Messiah. In Mark 10, 33 and 34, Jesus for the third time, tells his disciples plainly what's about to happen to him in Jerusalem. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. You see, for Jesus, this is no mere battle of wits. It's, this is not an academic debate. For Jesus, this was a matter of life and death and life again. If the dead are not raised, then what he's claiming, claiming will happen to him is a sham. 
And that means that he himself is a charlatan. He's fraudulent in his claims. His mission as Messiah hinged on the reality of the resurrection. He had come to Jerusalem in obedience to God to die. But death was not his end goal. He was entrusting himself to God who had promised to raise him from the dead gloriously. He would be the first human being to rise from the dead to a new kind of life. An indestructible life. The Sadducees could scarcely have taken arrogant cheap shots at something closer to the heart of Jesus. I'd imagine at this point in our story, the Sadducees are standing with their arms folded and with these kind of self-satisfied smiles on their faces, confident in their wisdom, sure that they are about to show up, this upstart rabbi. But no, Jesus will respond. Look back at the story which preceded this one, that conflict with the Pharisees and Herodians. Jesus' reply to the question from that committee who came to him was clever and subtle. But look at verse 24 in this passage. His reply to the Sadducees is blunt and combative. Yo, you're wrong. And I can show you why you're wrong. Jesus says they're mistaken in two areas. They don't know the scriptures and they don't know the power of God. James Edwards helps us to feel the gravity of Jesus' reply to these Sadducees. The audacity of Jesus' accusation of the Sadducees would be like claiming that Wall Street knows nothing about finance. (laughs) Scripture, the Torah, and power, the Sanhedrin, were precisely the Sadducees' stock in trade. The two matters in which they majored. In magisterial authority, Jesus asserts that what the Sadducees claim to know best, they in fact know least. They are vulnerable not at their weak points, but at their strong points. They have gone astray, not at the periphery or in the incidentals of their belief system, but at the heart and center of their beliefs. Perhaps now you'd recognize how much of a slap in the face Jesus' first statement was in his reply to the Sadducees. This was never a contest. The Sadducees' unbelief blinded them from seeing whom they had challenged. Mark, however, wants his readers to see. In these altercations in Jerusalem, he's portraying Jesus as God's chosen king who has all wisdom and all authority. Jesus is not being arrogantly dismissive of them. He's just speaking with absolute authority. That's what we saw on display from the very first time we saw Jesus teaching back in chapter 1 in the synagogue. He taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Let's pay close attention to how Jesus explains his assertion that the Sadducees are wrong. His answer in verses 25 to 27 first addresses the manner of the resurrection, speaking to God's power and directly replying to the Sadducees' faulty assumption about marriage in the age to come. He then addresses the fact of the resurrection from the scriptures. Jesus explains that as far as marriage is concerned, the life to come won't be like this life. In the resurrection, there will be no marriage. There will be no giving of brides in marriage. We will be like the angels. Now, that last statement can cause some misunderstanding. I grew up watching these cartoons where characters would die kind of comically, and then you'd see them, this, this kind of ghostly form rising from them, suddenly in a white robe and suddenly equipped with a harp, and they'd suddenly be able to sing and be singing as they rise up into the clouds. Those cartoons were simply illustrations of the popular idea that we become angels when we die. 
You know, sometimes when people lose a loved one, especially if the person dies particularly early, you'll go to the funeral and you might hear somebody express the sentiment, you know, God probably needed another angel. But that's not what Jesus is teaching. Human beings and angels are different parts of God's good creation. We don't become angels when we die. In fact, the scriptures teach that believers will judge angels. What? I mean, go figure. I'm just waiting to see how that one plays out because I don't know what that means. Jesus is saying that in the resurrection, we'll become like angels in some respects. The main one in view is that angels don't marry or procreate. The logical conundrum that the Sadducees envisioned is a non-issue. Marriage won't exist in the life to come. It is a blessing for this life that doesn't carry over into the next. Samora won't be my wife when we rise from the dead. Or marriage will be a part of our history, but not a part of our current experience. That doesn't mean that we're going to be strangers to each other, though. The clear sense in the Bible is that one of the things that we carry forward into the next life is the the friendships, the relationships, and the connections that we have with one another. Now, this truth is all over the Bible. But just a couple cases in point. Think of Jesus on the cross speaking to the repentant thief. He He said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. That means that that thief is going to know himself and know Jesus, and recall their interaction, and just remember that Jesus has fulfilled his promise to him. Think also of how the Apostle Paul comforts the saints in Thessalonica, who didn't get to learn that much about the the second coming of Jesus before Paul was torn from them. And they were concerned now because members of their community had died, and to their minds, these people are going to miss the return of Christ. But Paul explains to them that Jesus' return means a reunion. It means that those who have died will rise from the grave and those who are alive will be caught up to meet them in the air. Now, a reunion where you recognize nobody is not a particularly meaningful reunion. What Jesus is highlighting is God's power to raise the dead and bring them into a new experience. When we rise from the dead, we will be perfected as people, perfected in our relationships, but also we'll have new bodies which will never die or age, able to enjoy all of the blessings that God has in store for us in the age to come. And in his wise plan, there will be no marriage then. Next, Jesus turns his attention to the fact of the resurrection, pointing out that the truth of it is embedded even in the Torah, the section of the scriptures that the Sadducees held to and claimed to be authorities about. Now, on one level, Jesus is using the Torah to rebut their own use of scriptures. But there's something else here that we need to see. Jesus treats the scriptures as authoritative. They're not irrelevant now that he was on the scene. His presence and teaching illuminate the scriptures. He holds God's word in the highest regard. What this shows is that if we reject the scriptures, we will not be able to receive revelation and to be delivered from our own ignorant thoughts. If we don't understand the scriptures, we're going to miss out on important truths that are meant to shape our lives. We are creatures. We are limited by how God has designed us. And we need revelation from our creator. There's no way around reckoning with God's word. It tells us what we cannot know otherwise. Jesus, in replying to the Sadducees, directs their attention to the story of the bush in the book of Moses. If that hits you in a weird sort of way, or in a kind of weird way to refer to it, remember that chapters and verses were only added to the Bible in 1560. Before that point, everyone referenced scriptures the way we would talk about a movie that we've seen or a TV series. You remember the scene, the scene of the bush that was burning and it, wouldn't, it just wouldn't burn up? 
the scriptures just lived in people's popular imagination. That's what Jesus is doing here. Now I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about just some of you guys who I know don't feel like you're that competent with the scriptures. I mean, you're, you're trying to read them. You know, you may have tried to memorize stuff in the past, but it's just not sticking. And you feel like you go into situations and you can't really reference scriptures for people. So you, you just struggle with that kind of lack of confidence about handling the scriptures. Here's the thing to realize from this. Knowing the story and understanding the story is a lot more important than being able to quote verses verbatim or even to say where it comes from. No, it's good to be able to give a reference. That's something that is worth working hard at. But it's better to get the story into you and learn to live in the story. So, in the story of the bush, Jesus focuses attention on how God introduced himself to Moses. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And then Jesus comments, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Mic drop. Argument done. And we're left like, okay, I guess that was a victory. I'm looking for the rules of this kind of debate because I don't really see it. I mean, I really wouldn't fault you if you don't get at first glance or even at many glances how this reply could serve as a proof for the resurrection. But I want to help you to see it because this is fantastic stuff. The story Jesus is referring to is found in Exodus 3. God introduces himself for the first time to Moses, the man who God has chosen to lead the deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. Moses was a refugee from Egypt at this point, living in the desert and working as a shepherd. Now when God spoke to him uh, in this story, uh, and, and he, speak, uh, he, uh, he t- introduces himself in this particular way, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were most assuredly dead. Yet Jesus is saying right here in the story, that, that, that in the story of the bush, there is incontrovertible proof of the resurrection. The key to seeing what Jesus is saying is remembering the bigger story in Genesis and Exodus. And the closest clue is going to be found for us in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24. Speaking of the Israelites, Abraham's descendants who were slaves in Egypt at the time, it says, And God heard their groanings, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. You see, God had bound himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in covenant promises. Some of those promises concerned their descendants. So God was bound now to the Israelites. When it says he remembered them, it means he was about to act to fulfill his promises. But some of the promises he made to the patriarchs were personal promises. And all of those were not fulfilled while they were alive. That's what Hebrews 11.13 points out. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now, sometimes when we meet people, we tend to introduce ourselves by associations. I'm Mr. So-and-so, and I used to work with your father. God was not introducing himself as the God who used to work with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when they were alive. What assurance would that have given Moses, who was being called to face off with the most powerful person on the earth, with Pharaoh? You know, uh, hi, I'm the God of your fathers who wasn't able to keep his promises to them. No, that's not what's going on. God was saying, I am the one who bound himself to your fathers, and I will be faithful to all of my promises to them. And that includes deliverance for you. 
If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead, and that's that, if death is the end of the story, then God failed to keep his promises to them. They cannot be dead and gone. God made promises to them that he intends to keep. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must rise from the dead because God hasn't finished keeping his promises to them yet. Death does not have the final say. God does. Jesus' point is that if there is no resurrection, it will lead to some tenable situations with God's covenant. God would have failed to keep his promises. The resurrection for Jesus was a logical necessity because God will keep his promises. Embedded in the phrase, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, is God's absolute commitment to his covenant. As William Lane says, it is in fidelity to his covenant that God will resurrect the dead. What's particularly sad about the Sadducees' mistake, and up to this point I've resisted all of these horrible Sadducee jokes, is that they would have fiercely claimed to have believed in God's covenant with his people. I undid it, didn't I? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, but the Sadducees, I mean, these guys are serious. They're, they, are, they are dedicated to what they believe in. And remember, they've zoned in on the Torah. So as far as they're concerned, this is our territory. We are the people of the covenant. Yet they couldn't see that it was the covenant that necessitated the very thing they mocked. We need to jump forward from their time to our time, from the Sadducees to us, because this is not a history lesson. If we were to organize a contemporary debate about life after death, what, are, what do you think are some of the perspectives we'd hear in that kind of conversation? I mean, I think we'd get some of the Eastern perspectives about reincarnation, that sort of thing. Uh, there are definitely people today who make assumptions about the nature of the universe and conclude that this life is all there is. But there are lots of people who believe, or at least hope, that after we die, we go to a better place. It's one of the ways the dominance of the Christian worldview has left its mark on Western thought. But what remains in popular consciousness is a heaven without God, a resurrection without any reckoning for sin. So around us we have no resurrection and what I'll call folk resurrection. But we Christians have it right, don't we? We just concluded a series preaching through a bit over half of our statement of faith, the statement of faith we share with all of our sister churches in our denomination, Sovereign Grace Churches. Quite appropriately, the last heading in our statement of faith, which of course we haven't reached yet, is the last things. Here's some of what it says. I just wanted to read some sections for you. At the end of the age, the just and the unjust will be raised as their souls are reunited to their bodies. The just to a resurrection of life, the unjust to a resurrection of judgment. Those who suppressed God's truth in unrighteousness and did not obey the gospel of Christ will suffer the righteous wrath of God and be justly cast into the hell of fire with the devil and his angels. There they will experience eternal conscious punishment according to their sins. Those saved by Christ, whose names are written in the book of life, will be welcomed into the joy of their master and richly rewarded for every good work done in his name. God's glorified people will inherit the kingdom from which all sin, sorrow, suffering, and death will be banished. Surrounded by unimaginable beauty, we will enjoy unhindered communion with our triune God, beholding him, serving him, worshiping him, and reigning with him forever and ever. 
That is the glorious truth that the Bible teaches. I mean, there's more to it, but that's an accurate summary of some of the highlights. That's what we hold to, at least on paper. My concern for us is not theological orthodoxy. It's that we can fail to live as if we believe in the resurrection. My concern is that the resurrection can be a doctrine we confess, yet fail to be a hope that we, we possess. Or better yet, a hope that possesses us. My concern is that we'll end up living in so many areas of our lives as if this life is all there is. You see, Mark is not presenting Jesus in all his authority and wisdom so that we'll kind of cheer for him. We're on Jesus' side. We're taking bets before the debate, you know, to say it. And, and we bet on Jesus so we win, you know. And, you know, watching him dispatch his, his opponent marvelously. He's presenting a savior so that we will trust him and follow him. He wants our hopes to be shaped and our hearts to be secured by Jesus' teaching. You see, I've been reflecting on this experience of this global pandemic that we are still walking through. I mean, you couldn't have told me that we'd still be in this at this point in time. When it all started, we were like, boy, this is bad. You know, this, this slowing down, we can't go nowhere. Boy, this is bad. But all right, maybe by the summer. Then maybe by September. Maybe by Christmas. All right, maybe February. All right, and we've just been going on and on. I mean, and this third wave that we're experiencing has been the worst by far. This past week, I was speaking to a friend from Swallowfield, just catching up, and he just mentioned in passing that their community has lost four or five people in the last few weeks. And it just kind of struck me because, you know, we're a church plant. We're still really small. Our demographic tends towards being younger at this point in time. Um, so we are not experiencing this like other Christian communities are. Uh, CLF lost a, a, a member um, not so many weeks ago also, a guy we knew well. Uh, you heard this morning that Sonia, from our, from our, one of our members, lost her mother-in-law. Um, I remember some months ago at one of our Sunday gatherings, Ruth Ann Taylor shared this prophetic impression about a coming experience of death and sorrow. And honestly, at the time, I had no idea what to make of it. And here I am, you know, I'm the lead pastor. I'm kind of in charge in this moment. And we welcome this prophetic impression. And I'm like, okay, Lord, I don't know what this is. But we prayed about it because I thought that was the best response. You know, God has given us a sense of something. Um, let's just express our trust in him and look to him. But that word came back to my mind a few weeks ago, and I asked her just to send it to me. And it was so weird. I was looking at it, and it didn't look nearly as strange and outlandish as it sounded to me when she first said it. The death of believers, even in this time when so many are dying, can make us wonder about the promises of God. Isn't God supposed to protect those who trust in him? Doesn't Psalm 91.3 say, For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence? When we face danger in this life, when we face the threat of losing loved ones in Christ, we sometimes forget God's promise in Romans 8, 38 and 39. Neither death nor life, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, that promise was secured by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Right here in this passage, in Mark, we're reminded that God's covenant promises necessitate the resurrection. Yes, we do look for and pray for blessings in this life. 
But we should not be shaken like those who believe that this life is all there is. Or like those who believe that the best we will ever experience is in the here and now. Jesus wasn't defending the resurrection only because his life depended on it. Our lives depend on it too. Our salvation and our future depended on the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection means that all those who trust him will experience a resurrection just like his. You see, God has made promises to us too, just like the patriarchs that cannot and will not be fulfilled in this life only. According to Ephesians 2, 7, he made us alive together with Christ by the power of Christ's resurrection so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God's plan was always going to take us beyond this life. God's faithfulness continues into the age to come. His best is reserved for then. And I think that's a really important theme for us to meditate on and hold on to in these times. This passage also continues to shape how we think about marriage. It means that marriage is not the pinnacle of of, of human existence. That's a perspective that we need to keep. Now, if you've been called to singleness, you need to keep that in mind in the moments when you're disappointed, in the moments when you're struggling. I know we churches can be as guilty as anyone as make, as, as, of making marriage look like it's the pinnacle of human experience. If you want to be married and you haven't found a suitable spouse who, who shares your faith in Christ, you need to keep this in mind. It will help you to battle the temptation to compromise on God's standards or to make an unwise decision. If you've been called to a difficult marriage, look, I remember just in my internship, just serving people who were in just hard, just arid marriages. It was just a constant struggle. And there are many things that encourage people in that situation. But this perspective also encourages you to fight, to continue to sacrifice and honor God in that situation. You see, happily ever after was never meant to be now. And if you trust in Jesus, happily ever after is guaranteed for you. Those of you for whom your marriage has already ended, you need to keep this perspective also. There's probably a lot that God wants to teach you, to show you about yourself. There there are things he wants you to grow in. But in the aftermath, you don't need to carry this sense of shame and a perpetual sense of failure. God is writing a good story with your life. You see, your story is a part of the big story of salvation that he is telling. The best for you is yet to come. God has good in store for you now. And his best is reserved for you in the age to come. See, marriage is a good gift from God, but it is a gift for now. In the future, God will give us better gifts. And the greatest of those gifts is himself. He will keep all of his promises to us. He is the covenant-keeping God, and his promises continue into the age to come. Through this gospel of Mark, God, by his Spirit, continues to present Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for us to see him, to trust him, and to follow him. Once again, we've seen Jesus' wisdom and authority on display. The Sadducees had the audacity to step to Jesus, and it was no contest. But this wasn't merely an exercise in debate. Jesus trusted in God's word. He held to the promise of resurrection for his life and for ours. His mission hinged on it. Our salvation hinged on it. God's promises hinge on it. And this hope 
is given to us for every single day of our lives in this age while we wait for the age to come. So here's the sum of it all. Jesus guarantees that there will be a resurrection to a new kind of life through God's power and promises. If you believe that, not just on paper, but if this hope is your hope, if you grab Jesus' guarantee and run with it, you will find grace that lifts you in every circumstance and every situation you will face. You'll be able to receive the blessings of this life, but not to live for them. You'll be able to walk through the sorrows of this life and find comfort that comes from God. And you'll be able to be a light to others in uncertain and fearful times. Jesus guarantees that there will be a resurrection to a new kind of life through God's power and promises. Saints, let's hold on to Jesus' guarantee. Let's fix our eyes on God's unseen promises. Let's trust in his power. And as you struggle sometimes to believe in the goodness of the life to come, cry out to God. It is the power of his word and the work of his spirit that takes this guarantee and makes it real in our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.